Hi, Paul Sloan here. Welcome to my podcast series where I talk to some people I know about the influences, turning points and lessons from their lives. So today my guest is a musician, entertainer, a man who's had many different careers in his life and now lives in Heber City in Utah uh, and is uh, uh, an old boss of mine, Kerry Hobbs. Kerry, how are you today? <laughs> Paul Sloan, of all people to run into about, what, 6,000 miles apart. Yes, hey, I'm great. It's a wonderful summer day and actually over in Midway, Utah, which is just out of uh, Heber City. And uh, yeah, we're enjoying summertime and we're getting ready for the 4th of July holiday. You may have heard of it. Uh, I don't know what that's about. Um, <laughs> so tell me, Carrie, when and where were you born, please? Well, I was born uh, in Lubbock, Texas, out in West Texas, where it's out on the plains. It's a very flat farm country, primarily. And uh, I really grew up on a cotton farm in Lubbock. I was born in 1941, just uh, before Pearl Harbor uh, occurred. And uh, I was an only child living on a farm and sort of grew up by myself a little bit out there with a, a mother and dad. My dad had a, owned a barber shop and uh, was a farmer. So he raised cotton and so forth. And I grew up working on the farm and hanging around his barber shop. My mom, uh, when I was born, became a stay-at-home mom. She'd been a supervisor at a telephone company there. And being out on the farm by yourself as an only child, you have a tendency to read a lot and look at a lot of books and so I sort of, I grew up reading the Compton pictured encyclopedias, but I, I had a very happy childhood, wonderful dog that was my best friend and companion that I grew up with. Yeah, it was a good place to grow up far away from uh, a lot of the uh, problems, I guess, that we have in the world today. Now, I believe you had the first rock and roll radio show in Lubbock, Texas in 1955. Is that true? That's true. I uh, In junior high school, there was a little troop that went around to various civic organizations, Lions Clubs, uh, Rotary, etc., and uh, entertained. And so I told jokes and played piano with a, a buddy, and uh, it was sort of a little comedy show, and I was the MC. Well, after uh, one of these shows at a church, a fellow came up, and he said, that I'm the sales manager of the local Pontiac dealership, and we would like to sponsor a program featuring this new wild music. They're playing in Dallas and Los Angeles. It had not yet made Lubbock, but he said it's called rock and roll, and the kids are really going for it, and we'd like some kid who will tell these corny jokes that you told and read request, and someone who would be around for a few years. I was only in the ninth grade, so I said, hey, I'm your guy. And uh, that started what uh, turned out to be a big thing in my life uh, as a, a radio guy. Uh, yeah, and at the time, Buddy Holly was uh, a local boy, and we had no idea Buddy Holly would ever be a star of any kind. Waylon Jennings was uh, about 30 miles down the road, and he was uh, working, I don't know, in a tire store or something. And Mac Davis, who became a big star, was uh, the water boy on our football team. So it was, a, it was a fun place to be at, a, at that time of the world, which was in the 
sort of the mid-50s. What about Elvis? Oh, I had Elvis on my radio show. We uh, This radio station brought uh, Grand Ole Opry shows into uh, town about every three weeks. And so there would be a lineup of people. Well, we were bringing a guy named Hank Snow, the singing ranger, but with about four or five other people. And way down on the list of people was Elvis Presley, who had uh, four records out at the time. And so the uh, station decided maybe we could get Elvis to do a remote broadcast from the Pontiac dealership. And so they got a hold of his manager, and they said, yes, Elvis and Scotty and Bill would do a 30-minute show for $150 as a remote broadcast. So, and you hosted, so, that, you hosted Elvis on your show, did you? <laughs> so we hustled down, and Elvis drove up in a pink Cadillac, and uh, they had uh, the Bill Black's bass strapped to the top of this pink Cadillac. And <laughs> they brought it into the uh, service department and uh, got all hooked up. We only had one microphone and one amplifier. Nowadays, to have one person on the radio takes a whole room full of equipment. Back then, it was that was all all that was required. So uh, I introduced him as the Memphis Flash, and he started. Well, I heard the news. As good rocking tonight. And all the little girls who had filled this showroom of the uh, service department began to scream. And we had never seen anything like that. or never heard. We didn't know they knew to do that. So it was quite an amazing thing. And uh, Elvis finished in 30 minutes. We had another 15 minutes to go. So we had Buddy Holly and his band, which was Buddy, Bob, and Larry at the time, to uh, come in. And they finished the last 15 minutes, but no one listened to them because they had all moved in mass out to watch uh, Elvis and his guys, Scotty and Bill, put the bass back on the Cadillac and drive away. That's a fantastic story. Any any other celebrities you had on the show? Oh, uh, uh, virtually all of them. Of that, you know, of that period, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. And I got to him see the shows at the uh, Coliseum when we had a rock and roll star, of which Jerry Lee was one. I spent a whole day with Fats Domino one time and, yeah, it's some fun things way back then. And you went to Texas State University, is that right? I did. I did. I went to Tech. I had no idea exactly what I was going to do because I really loved music and I loved show business, but I really was convinced that, that you weren't going to make a lot of money doing that, that it was very unstable. I watched enough people to know that uh, that was a sometimes a short fuse and that uh, maybe the best idea was to get an education and do something else and try to enjoy entertainment on the side, yeah. which is exactly what I did. So I got a degree in business administration um, at Texas Tech, a bachelor's degree, and uh, decided that I would then go forth and learn some various disciplines by hands-on experience. So the first job I had was as a national bank examiner for the Treasury Department of the federal government. And uh, that was in Kentucky. And we moved around and examined uh, national banks and looked at their loans. And the, the object there was to spend about a year, a year and a half, and learn as much as I could about finance. And from there, I went to Procter & Gamble and uh, hoping that I was going to learn about marketing at Procter & Gamble. And, uh, and I did somewhat. And then one of the luckiest things turned out to be a real life changer was I got recruited by IBM to come and be a salesman. I had sort of resisted IBM because I thought of them as being a uh, 
company where, you know, everybody, they all look like Mormon missionaries, you know, <laughs> wore blue suits and white shirts, and they looked alike, and they had the same haircut, and I thought, you know, this I'm a little bit too individualistic to go that route. But, lo and behold, I joined IBM, and it turned out to be uh, one of the great life-changing events for me through a series of sort of very lucky encounters I got to sort of be on the fast track of promotion. I'll tell you a little quick story that I think you'll enjoy. IBM was the world's largest non-unionized company. So I had been a young salesman at IBM for about a year. I got a call from my boss, and he said, uh, I need you to come in immediately, and uh, he said, I've got something to discuss. Well, that's, you know, that's always a little scary when the boss calls and says, you know, I want to, I need to talk to you. So I wondered what I had done. But when I got there, he said, would you entertain a move if it were not a necessarily a promotion? And I said, what? He said, well, you know, would you be willing to move your family not as a promotion, but as a, an opportunity? So he said, I can't really tell you any more about this than that. And I said, well, yeah, given the right opportunity, I certainly would. So he said, well, I'd like you to wear a nice white shirt tomorrow, and I get on a plane for New Orleans. And uh, he said, you'll learn more about what this is all about when you get there. So I hopped on a plane. I, I flew to New Orleans. This is in the summertime. Boy, it was so hot down here. I, my white shirt wilted when I walked off the plane. But I was to meet the vice president of marketing, for the office products division at a hotel. I checked in the hotel, called his room, and the fellow named Bob Guess, vice president of marketing, came and explained to me that uh, four people had petitioned the Teamsters Union to represent them to IBM as part of the Teamsters Union. And Bob Guess said, uh, we've done very well not being unionized and our people love us and there's no reason why most people would want to but he said this is a major event and so he said when you receive a petition such as this a number of things begin to happen a number of rules uh, go into place one of which is uh, we can staff an area up to our full allotted manpower and he said we are two salesmen short in new orleans and we are looking for Someone that we could bring in who would be, uh, we think, maybe future promotable. And they were looking for uh, young guys that they thought would be uh, favorable to IBM, not to the union. And I sort of understood <laughs> what he was talking about. So long story short, we made the move to New Orleans. And in a couple of years, I was promoted to the uh, training school, the sales training school turned out to be one of the great things that ever happened to me because, as you know, when you teach, you learn. So all the things that I had learned in sales school, now I really began to internalize because I'm teaching it every week. And after about a year of teaching the sales school to our new salesman, I got assigned to the manager school. And at that point in time, I got to meet virtually every manager in the country and our job was to train new marketing managers in how to be a manager. Once again, I hadn't been a manager, 
but holy mackerel, here I am teaching these courses and uh, rubbing shoulders with our guest instructors who were branch managers and whatnot. But uh, bottom line, that probably was one of the uh, luckiest things that ever happened to me because I formed a lot of my philosophy about business, about managing, about sales, and so forth from that experience, that two years of teaching it at our school. You were with IBM from 1965 to 1980, is that right? And you became branch manager. Yeah, right. And again, that was a shortcut. And Paul, you know, life is sort of a series of little things that 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 are almost unexpected things. So as a marketing manager, I had to fire a guy. I was in Salt Lake City at the time. And I had to fire a guy. Well, he protested. And the protest went all the way to the VP of sales who at that time was a guy named Terry Notari. So Terry Notari came to Salt Lake to investigate whether I should be fired from IBM for whatever I've done to this poor guy that, that I had terminated. And at the end of it, he said, you've done, you did this exactly right. And uh, congratulations, and I'm putting you on the short list of people to watch. And so, whereas normally from marketing manager you would have gone to a staff position, I got a call to be the branch manager in Moline, Illinois. You know, little incidences like that that you're sort of able to capitalize on are a lot of the things that happened to me in life that I have to say I was just very fortunate. Yes, I was in IBM too. I went through IBM sales training and management training, and it was a great experience. And then I yep. left IBM and I joined a, a, a software company, a database company called Ashton Tate. And that's I where we met. Well. <laughs> we have parallel careers because that's exactly what happened to me. I got When Ashton Tate first started, I, they only had just one product and no sales force. And I get a call from a headhunter who said, there's a startup little company in California that has this phenomenal product. They're looking for five regional managers. I said, well, I'm really not very interested in that. They said, well, fly out and have a, a talk to them. So I flew over to Torrance, California, and lo and behold, I joined them. And this was before the, uh, the, the company had gone public. So the stock was, you know, privately held and trading at, I don't know, a dollar and a half or something. That little opportunity just turned out to be a phenomenal thing because from being the regional manager in Dallas or for the mid mid the whole midsection of the US, I got a call. They said, How would you like to move to England? I said, You mean England? <laughs> <laughs> and that's when uh, the next thing you know I landed in Maidenhead and I met you and uh boy what a wonderful experience that was. And what what was the uh, most surprising thing for you about moving from the USA to England? Well, you know, I thought England was going to be just like the U.S., only with a different accent. <laughs> <laughs> it, it turned out that there were quite a few things. I mean, I made so many faux pas over there with my language, with my uh, uh, lack of understanding the culture, and <laughs> as I'm sure you remember as well. <laughs> no, you're, all, you're always very well liked. And then you went on to, to Sydney, didn't you? Didn't you go to Australia? I, I actually went uh, from England to back to California, and I was in charge of 
what was called the rest of the world or places where we did not have uh, uh, an office, a presence. So that included Latin America and Africa. But I wasn't there very long. They said, we want to open up Australia and New Zealand. And so I had an opportunity to move over there. Again, a phenomenal. I mean, I would pinch myself every morning and say, are they really paying me to do this? And, uh, yeah, it was just a terrific experience. And then, of course, as you know, uh, Ashton Tate sold, and the company, uh, the whole industry really uh, changed immensely. Yeah. So I moved back to Utah and began to do other things. And uh, music's been a big, big thing in your life, hasn't it, Carrie? Always. I love music. You know, if I, if I had to say I had a regret, it might be that I did not try for a... Uh, professional music career. Uh, I play uh, a lot, lot of instruments, and right now I think I'm playing in, I don't know, four or five different bands of different kinds. As a matter of fact, tonight I'm playing a banjo in a Dixieland band over in Salt Lake for some kind of event. And on uh, Saturday night I'll be at uh, Zermatt, one of our resorts, on keyboard and guitar as sort of a lounge act. I just do a lot of that sort of thing. I just really love doing it, and I love entertaining. I have a daily radio show here from our local AM station. And so, like, later today, I, I had some of the artists who were here painting in a plein air uh, art competition in this valley. Uh, some of these artists are also musicians. So we're going to all gather at the radio station this afternoon at 4.30 or 5 o'clock and have a little jam session on the air. You you volunteered in state parks, haven't you? <laughs> yes, I do. As a matter of fact, I volunteer for a lot of activities in the Valley, one of them being uh, that I'm a, a greeter at the uh, at a, one of our state parks. What would you say is your proudest achievement looking back at your career? You know, I think my best achievement is that I have had a happy life. Yeah. You know, I'm not necessarily into uh, amassing a, a lot of wealth or fame or things like that, but I am into uh, having wonderful experiences, meeting a lot of really neat people and doing things that I enjoy doing, which is pretty varied. And uh, I'm really into photography. I take a lot of photos. And I love art, and I love music, and, you know, basically, I've got a great family. My uh, kids all turned out. There's not one single child of mine in prison. <laughs> That's quite an achievement. What, what, just, who would you say Who would you say had a big influence on you uh, in your life? I think my dad was. My dad was, uh, he was a, a modest man, but he was... He was one of the, I can't imagine him ever doing anything dishonest or telling a lie, but he really had, he had a wonderful personality and he really related to people. So when he died, as I said, he was a barber for all of his life and, and, and a farmer as well. But when he died, we had a, a funeral and I bet about 500 people showed up to his funeral. People that I didn't know, I had no clue who they were. But afterwards, people would come up to me and tell me stories about things that my dad, little stories about the time he did this or the time he said that and whatnot, and people just loved my dad. 
and uh, and I did. And so I would have to say that I look at his example, the way he lived his life, the kind of person he was, that if when I die, I have 500 people who show up and say, I remember when Carrie did this or that or the other, that, um, you know, I will have been successful. Which musicians do you admire the most? Which musicians do you take as role models? Well, my all-time most admired guy is Glenn Campbell. Uh, for a lot of reasons. Number one, uh, he's a really down-to-earth kind of an entertainer. Number two, he's one of the most incredible guitar players that ever picked up the uh, guitar. He's a terrific singer, and he's a great, great entertainer. So I'd have to say if I had to be anybody, if I could sort of turn myself into somebody else, that I really, Lynn Campbell would probably be the, the number one guy I'd go for. What ambitions do you have left? You, you've, you've been a musician, an entertainer, a successful business person, a, a radio host. Uh, what do you want to do next? I want to do some more of all of it. <laughs> as long as I can. You know what I find interesting, Paul, is that if you stay interested and you get into, say, new new topics, new things that you knew absolutely nothing about, I can give you a great example of that is Art, in fine art, painting. I always really admired art, but I really knew nothing uh, about it. So about two years ago, or three maybe, I got into the Midway Art Association. We have uh, little workshops and meetings and whatnot. And in the last two or three years, I have learned to see things I never saw before. I see colors and shades and shapes. That's really been exciting, and I think if, if through your life you continue to find new things to learn about and new things to uh, experience, that it really keeps you keeps you young. I'm not necessarily very young anymore, as you know, but so far, so good. I mean, I certainly don't feel as old as I sound, <laughs> so I think that's probably what I'd hope for for the rest of my, my life. And what lessons would you like to share with somebody who is starting out on their, their journey in life? I would say, Paul, the number one thing is to be there. Get out there. The more things you do, the more people you meet, the more experiences you have, the more opportunities you will have. And sometimes when a situation comes up and you say, well, that's not necessarily very interesting. Or maybe this is like, for example, that move to New Orleans. Uh, You know, that was sort of a chancy kind of thing. But I'd say, you know, take those, go down those roads. Mainly be out there. The more people you meet, the more people you know, uh, the richer I think your life is going to be and the more opportunities you're going to have. Example is here we are. This is how many years since I was in England? 30 years, I guess. And here's Paul Sloan and Kerry Hobbs talking over the 6,000 miles and all as a result of a headhunter's call to come and interview with a little startup software company in California. It's amazing the way it goes, isn't it? Okay, thanks very much, Carrie. Good to talk to you, Paul. Thanks. Bye.